question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. On the program, we'll be discussing the rise of administration of justice offenses. These are typically breaches of bail and probation and the use of particular spatial strategies in Vancouver's criminal justice system. Our particular practice is setting marginalized groups up to fail in the criminal justice system, and how do certain criminal justice practices affect how people, particularly low-income people, negotiate urban neighborhoods? You're tuned into The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. And thanks for tuning in. I'm Andy Longhurst, and welcome to the program. Failure to comply with a court order and breach of probation are the two most common criminal offenses in Canada. They make up 20% of all criminal matters in the country, writes Will Damon. In BC, these crimes are even more common. Administration of justice offenses, primarily breaches of bail and probation, represented almost half, over 40%, of all BC's criminal court case matters in 2012. This number is growing despite a drop in overall crime rates. Police charges for bail violations increased 127% between 2000 and 2012. And yet the overall charging rate decreased by 1.4%, according to StatsCan. Many experts, judges, and legal professionals deem it necessary to reconsider what counts as a reasonable condition of release. They call for more restraint in the use of abstinence conditions, curfews, area restrictions, and other restrictive conditions. Others emphasize the success of the community court model, which seeks to address the root causes of crime. A growing chorus of legal professionals, provincial justice, reform initiatives, and academics are concerned that some conditions of bail and probation can unfairly set up the young, the vulnerable, and the mentally ill to fail in the criminal justice system. And my guest today on the program is Will Damon. He is a recent graduate of Simon Fraser University's Master's Program in Human Geography, and he recently completed a research project examining the significance of administration of justice offenses, particularly area restrictions and the implications for marginalized groups in Vancouver. Well, do you want to first begin by uh, telling me about uh, about the research and maybe just outline some of the general um, findings of, of your thesis? Sure. Well, thanks for having me here, Andy. Um, my thesis, the title was or is Spatial Tactics in Vancouver's Judicial System, and 
it's part of a two-year project funded in part by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council and by Fulbright Canada. And uh, the focus of the project is looking at different crime prevention tactics that are being used by the Canadian criminal justice system in Vancouver and trying to, by looking at the Vancouver experience, make an argument or to try to describe really what's going on throughout Canada. Um, my project itself was a pilot project for a larger Canada-wide study that has researchers in Montreal and Toronto. Um, in Vancouver, what I was looking at primarily were a set of conditions that are imposed by courts and police and some other legal actors as well that prohibit someone from entering a certain part of town. Uh, they're called red zones or no-go orders. They're basically area restrictions that are used by the justice system to try to control individual behavior patterns that are associated with criminal activity. So what this looks like in practice is that a lot of people that are, um, for whatever reason, caught up in the justice system, often because of um, drug, illicit drug use, uh, theft, patterns of theft, and often related, again, to drug use, mental health issues do come up as well, um, find themselves navigating often multiple different forms of court-ordered release. So um, maybe before I get into too much detail, it might be helpful to give a little bit of background about how Canadian criminal justice works. Uh, I think that a lot of people have this notion about how the justice system functions that's really informed by maybe TV shows or I don't know, what have you, um, where there's a focus on a trial, maybe finding of guilt is sort of the central pivot around which a lot of this will happen. And um, a lot of the crime that is being engaged in might be high profile, you know, guns, gangs, drugs, that kind of thing. Uh, I think the reality is quite different, and it's changed a lot over the years, and really what we see on TV is a pretty far cry from what you see if you were to just walk into any courthouse in Canada. So go down to 222 Main Street, the provincial criminal courthouse here in Vancouver, and what you'll see primarily is um, a lot of procedure, a lot of process. So people, defendants move through the courthouse, many in a single day, often you know 30 to 40 people being processed in one courtroom over the course of a day, kind of a never-ending stream of people, and there's very little talk about rights. There's no trials that are happening for the most part. Most cases don't proceed to trial in Canada. Something like 96% of cases never get to the trial phase, and those that actually end up going to trial, many of them collapse before they get to a verdict. So the vast majority, huge, overwhelming majority of criminal case matters are dealt with out of finding of guilt at all. It's all plea bargaining and... Um, so anyways, with that kind of in mind, this sort of procedural aspect to the criminal justice system, one of the main forms of, one of the most important moments in the justice process is the decision to grant bail. And I think probably most people listening to this will know vaguely what bail is. It's pretrial release. So you've been accused by the police or by someone of a crime. You haven't gone to trial yet. You haven't pled out. So you haven't admitted your guilt. Um, so you're insisting that at least provisionally you're not guilty. Uh, what will happen is the court will make a decision. Is this person at a significant risk, whether a flight risk? So do they, does the court think that you might flee the province, leave the city or something? Uh, do they think that you may not show up at your court date? Do they think that you might reoffend? And that's, this is a key concern of the justice system is people that have patterns of reoffending, so repeat reoffending. Um, 
or do you think that or would your release in some way undermine public confidence in the justice system those are the, they're the three grounds for detention and um the secondary ground in particular has become a central concern. There's been a what I call in my thesis the, a shift towards the front end of the justice system. And at this front end moment, what we're primarily concerned with isn't so much adjudicating guilt or innocence. It has a lot more to do with trying to prevent the future reoffending. So it's trying to find ways to strategically, tactically reduce the likelihood that someone's going to commit a new crime. Because, by and large, most criminal offenses are committed by a relatively small percentage of the population who account for a disproportionate number of criminal offenses. And so courts in Canada have become ingenious at, um, and have employed a dizzying array of tactics to, to accomplish these ends. Uh, and it's interesting, really. I mean, Canada, in a lot of ways, is leading a worldwide conversation that's happening around criminal justice reform because in Canada what we've seen is a resolute at least historically a resistance to the US style mass incarceration and the bedrock of US style mass incarceration are long long prison sentences um, you'll probably be familiar with three strikes you're out sort of policies well nothing like that exists in Canada so the Canadian experience is relatively unique um, in that regard and what that means is that a lot of people are serving relatively short sentences. Uh, of course, most most of the repeat offenders are committing very petty crimes, property crime primarily. Um, and so in order to, without being able to, you know, the language that's used is often incapacitation. So you have identified someone as a repeat offender while you try to get them on serious charges that wind them up in prison for a very long period of time. Well, Canadian courts can't do that as easily as courts in the States can. So in this kind of vacuum, you see these crime prevention tactics taking shape. Anyways, this is sort of a meandering introduction to Canadian criminology, but to kind of hone in on, on my own thesis, my own contribution is the Canadian experience generally, there's been a sense of not really examining what exactly are these tactics that we're using, these crime prevention tactics. And legally, the term would be a condition of bail or probation. So as I mentioned before, there are three grounds for detention. And if the court believes that there are some other kinds of conditions that can be imposed on someone's behavior that will reduce the likelihood that, that someone will commit an offense or that will reduce the likelihood that someone will, for instance, reoffend or leave the country or what have you, if someone can satisfy a set of conditions, then they'll release this person. So um, the presumption, of course, is that if you are treasure the crime, you'll be released. That's the very basic assumption, um, foundational to our sense of what, what would be just. We, you know, there's a presumption that you're innocent. Um, now, of course, given that so many people are repeat offenders, have very lengthy criminal records, and don't and and will reoffend in all likelihood when they're released back into the streets, courts have often that presumption of innocence is often not very frequently found in the court. Most courts and most people moving through the court system, there's a sense that there's a likelihood that these people will really offend. And so what you see is often several conditions being imposed. So one of the most basic findings of my thesis is that the average num court, the average bail order imposed in Vancouver provincial court system contains at least six different conditions of release. So these could vary. Lots of different kinds of conditions can be imposed. You'll see things like 
you know, a very common one. Actually, the mandatory condition of all bail orders is that you keep the peace and be of good behavior. Um, another condition that's very common, although not mandatory, is that you report to a supervisor. So you'd have a bail or probation officer that's supervising your behavior, and you would have some sort of reporting requirement where you'd have to come back and meet with this person. But of course, the you know most of these conditions, these other remaining four, are optional conditions. Legally, the clause in the criminal code is that a judge can impose such other conditions as they deem reasonable. So it's this sort of um, you know, a magic box legally that opens up this whole range of judicial discretion in terms of the kinds of conditions that can be put in place. And judges are really left to impose the sorts of conditions that they believe, based on their worldview and what they think is appropriate, will reduce the likelihood that someone will reoffend. And what's interesting, what's fascinating really, is that these conditions, the kinds of optional conditions imposed, they're not subject to any kind of like means testing or there's no sense about any kind of rigorous analysis of what effects these conditions are having. Judges are by and large ignorant of the kinds of consequences that come that, that follow from the decision to impose a condition like these. So it's a sort of guesswork based on yeah, assumptions about the relationship between uh, crime and the individual behavior, between criminal activity in certain parts of the city, all of these notions about how cities work, about how people think and behave and how they respond to court orders are really bracketing and part of the decision to impose these conditions, but no one's really looked at these. I mean, it's incredible how little research has been done in this area, given that there's such a large part of the criminal justice system in Canada. So to begin to talk a little bit about numbers, and I don't want to throw too many figures at you, but um, the top two criminal offenses in Canada that account for 21% of all crimes throughout Canada are violations of court orders. So this is, you know, a quarter of all criminal conduct, a little less than that, is basically people not being able to comply with either the optional conditions that were attached to their court order or not showing up at their court date or what have you. I mean, violation of a court order can look like a lot of things. But nonetheless, the sense is that enforcing, imposing conditions of release and enforcing the conditions thereof are a dominant concern of the current Canadian criminal justice system. And what's fascinating to me is the kind of work that these conditions can do, the huge variety of activity that they can prescribe um, it's it's you know it's almost amusing in some cases uh, I had so a little maybe a word about my methods I had um, a one month snapshot of all court orders imposed in the city of Vancouver, including all the conditions of release, um, and you just see this huge variety. Every judge has their own style, their own language, their own conditions they like to impose. I mean there are patterns in it, but it's really this very flexible f moment in the criminal law, which is one of the reasons I find very interesting. Um, but uh, in the case of my focus in my study were these area restrictions or red zones uh, and I'll use the word red zone to refer to kind of a, any, any condition of release that demarcates an area usually on a map from which a person cannot, cannot go uh, is, is, uh, from which a person is excluded so um, if you look at these conditions just these ones there's dizzying differences in the size of them, the shape, the location, the rationale can change, and you can read into the rationale a bit, although a lot of the why questions come out of interviews, which are another component of my research, pro research project. Um, but even with red zones, I mean, they do concentrate in the downtown east side. I found that 40% of all area restrictions that were imposed in my one-month sample were in the downtown east side. Uh, the majority of which were for drug-related offenses or administrative offenses that had as their root uh, drug-related offenses. 
Now, um, even even within the Dantoni side, there's considerable variability about the size and the shape of the, re of the restriction. So one of the one of the questions that I had is, well, what effect are these conditions having? I mean, we don't even know to get started with what tr what kinds of conditions are imposed generally. That, that that's not a the research literature has nothing to say about this. Uh, so, for instance, we don't really have a good sense about what your average bail order even looks like. I mean, I'm sure that judges have a good sense, a practical working knowledge about what an average bail order would look like for a different offense. But in terms of a statistical perspective, no, nobody really knows. It's sort of a new frontier for criminology. So it's really interesting even just to document, well, what, what on average are we talking about when we talk about bail? Like, what kind of work are bail conditions doing? Um, so another component of my research project was just coding and analyzing the distribution of conditions on bail. And what we found was uh, red zones occupied a significant percentage of all optional conditions imposed. So if a judge was going to impose an optional condition outside of the mandatory condition that you uh, keep the peace and be a good behavior, the very frequently imposed condition that you report to a bail supervisor, the next most common condition, oh, and that you reside as directed, so you have to, a very common requirement is that you provide an address and then stay at that address, so to reside as directed, and that's because they're going to mail you court documents, so it's a very practical condition. But if you look at the real optional conditions that are more aimed at targeting specific behaviors, red zones are by far the most common. Mm. Um, Curfews are another common one. Orders to abstain from drugs and alcohol are also very common. So 40% of all, and you know, I ha maybe go back to my thesis to get the exact precise figure, but we're talking around 40% of all bail conditions are red zones. So they're very common, and, and like I said, they're doing a lot of interesting work in the city. So um, yeah, so I, I think that's hopefully I've, I've kind of covered some ground there and, and introduced a few key issues that my thesis is looking at. Maybe building off of that, can you talk specifically about um, some of the conversations and um, interviews with um, those that uh, were given um, or had red zones that they had to abide by or, or not, um, and those experiences and, and really what that means um, on the city streets and on the ground mm -hmm. for people? Yeah, that's a great question. So another component of my research project, I, I analyzed these, these one-month sample, and um, that was a good, helpful to get a sense of how common these conditions are, what effects they might be having. Um, and I should add that I think it's important for talking about the interviews that it, in that sample of data, we found that red zones increase the likelihood that someone's going to be violating their court order. So if you have a red zone, you're more likely to, re, to, to be charged with any kind of criminal offense uh, after the imposition of the bail order. But anyways, with that said... Um, I did a series of focus groups and interviews with people that were subject to a red zone, and I found these folks through a snowball sampling. I had a community partner organization, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, or VANDU, um, provide me with some initial contacts. And through those interviews, I asked if they had other people that I could introduce me to that they knew that had a red zone currently. And so uh, all told, I did about 20 interviews and uh, talked to a lot of people with a lot of different life experiences, different um, ethnic backgrounds, different uh, genders, um, yeah, very different age groups, all kinds of variability in terms of who I was speaking with uh, about what their experiences with red zones were. And one of the surprising or perhaps not so surprising findings is that uh, red zones are pretty difficult to enforce. Um, by and large, people were not following the terms of their court order it's fine print. A lot of people think about it like, you know, when you get a credit card in the mail, 
you might have, you know, if you're especially a low-income person who's targeted for predatory lending, you might get a whole lot of fine print to your credit card Well, you're not really thinking about that too much when you need to use it. Because the reasons that someone is engaging in a lot of this behavior, it has deep roots, addiction being one of the main ones. And the reality is, of course, when someone's living with an addiction, they're not going to obey a court order if they're if not if obeying it would mean withdrawing from a drug i mean the experience withdrawal is terrifying it's difficult and it requires a lot of support that's what detox is for for instance so in the absence of a lot of those supports people have a choice between either um voluntarily leaving the downtown east side and, and turning their backs on drugs which of course you know might, might be something that we'd want as a society to encourage folks to, to to do but of course not something that is often a very practical expectation to have um and I think the research on harm reduction, of course, bears that out, right? I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But anyways, yeah, only two people that I interviewed talked about f following the terms of their court orders. And both of the people who were re ready to follow the terms of their court orders were people that were sober. They had uh, left the addiction behind them and were moving on to a, a more stable life experiences. But for the folks that were living with addiction, they were more than willing to go into the area um, with, with it, from which they were uh, red zoned because they didn't understand the significance of the order often, um, or they agreed to the agreed to the court order in a situation where they felt compelled to do so, even though they really had no intention of following the court order. Uh, but regardless, people routinely entered the area from which they were banned, and the areas from which they were banned were almost inevitably uh, within the downtown east side, and usually fairly large areas. So um, a good example. Martin, one of my interview subjects, we'll call him Martin, uh, had a red zone that was the one block radius around Maine and Hastings. So a block radius would mean a city blocks extending around that that point, all the city, all the city blocks around a, a given point. Um, now Martin, somebody that does use illicit drugs, and um, you know about once a day purchases them and he would routinely enter his um, area restriction. Now being subject to that restriction effectively put um, Martin at a significantly elevated risk of running into the police and when he's running into the police he's almost inevitably going to be sent to a remand facility. So this gets to a little bit of a legal technicality but it's important to understand there's in Canadian the way the Canadian criminal law works there's no faster route between being stopped by the police and going to jail and being found within your red zone. And the reason that red zones are such an effective tool in terms of being able to detain somebody has to do with what's called a reverse onus provision in the criminal code. So I mentioned earlier the presumption of innocence is sort of bedrock to Canadian criminal justice. And what that means is fundamentally there's a presumption in our interaction with the state that the state cannot impinge on our liberty in any way without cause, without any some kind of just cause approved by a court of law. Now, when you're found within your area restriction, you're guilty, you're already guilty, and there's no legal question at issue isn't the reasonableness of the order. It has nothing to do with your ability to abide by the restriction or why you were in there. It doesn't have anything to do with, um, with you know, intention, bad intentions. It's a question, a simple Cartesian question. Were you within the area or were you not? And now, if you're within the area, the case is done. There's no point in really going to trial. You're going to plead guilty as soon as you can if you know it's good for you. If you wait for a trial, well, the result will be inevitably, and this is borne out by the statistics, you'll be going to jail. So anyways, the reverse onus provisions of the criminal code don't really have anything to do with the fact that it's a slam dunk case from a prosecutorial perspective. Reverse onus provisions, what they mean in practice 
is that the presumption that you will be released while you wait for your trial is reversed. So you have to prove to the police why they should let you go while you wait your trial because you've demonstrated by being found within your area restriction that you're unable to comply with a court-ordered release and therefore the, the default presumption is that you'll end up in remand. So, I mean, that seems on, on the face of things fairly reasonable. If you give someone a bail order, they agree to the terms, and they fail to abide by the terms of release, uh, okay, they go, to, they go to jail then. They had their chance and, and, and that's too bad. And I think, of course... Um, Look at it from that perspective. There, that is a strong art and, and, and persuasive argument. But you have to also consider the way that the trends and the use of these conditions have changed over time, and the way we understand the reasonableness of a bail of the bail condition when it first becomes imposed. Because um, what we've seen over the past, since the beginning of the twenty first century, these cr crime prevention tactics have become really common, right? So we've seen a spread of all these conditions of release, and there isn't a lot of um, as I mentioned before, there are not a lot of mechanisms for judges and the courts to get a sense of the consequences of the conditions that they're imposing. So the, the notion that the person's bail order that they're being subject to is going to be um, considering a very a, a, a robust sense of what's reasonable and effective given the goals of the imposition of that order, that's not necessarily true, right? So what that means in practice is that often people are being given bail orders, being subject to probationary conditions or conditions of parole that are a poor fit for their life circumstances. Um, one of the things that was surprisingly common were bail conditions that were out, not impossible to abide by. So one example of this is someone I interviewed that we'll call Jewel, who was, um, had some, uh, was differently abled. She had a mobility device and lived in an SRO, an infamous SRO on the downtown east side. She was given, she was found in possession of, I think, a narcotic. And as part of her bail order, she was given a red zone from four block radius that included her own residence. She ended up living in a room, she ended up not leaving her house, this tiny SRO room without a kitchen or a bathroom, for two days before she called her lawyer and asked, you know, what am I supposed to do? I have to buy groceries and I'm not allowed to leave my home. So she interpreted her bail order as effectively house arrest. Of course, this was just a mistake. The judge didn't understand that that was where she lived or it wasn't well communicated because, of course, when you go to a criminal courtroom, defendants are not First of all, they're often represented by duty counsel, people they've met for the first time that morning before they go show up in court. And there's often communication breakdowns and failures because people don't feel empowered, to say the least, to take part in the justice process. They just sit back and hope for the best outcome. And they'll by and large agree to any condition they're offered if they think it means they're not going to go to remand. So I think when we talk about um, the reasonableness of red zones, of course someone should abide by the conditions that they agree to. But we also have a judicial system, a criminal justice system that's creating and churning out these orders, imposing these bail conditions without a lot of reflectiveness or, or without, a, without a, any kind of uh, way to, to check to see if it's having the intended effect. Uh, if we want to reduce reoffending and we impose a red zone, someone's not going to comply with it. We've actually increased the likelihood that someone's going to reoffend, albeit for a different, co you know, a different kind of crime, namely violating a court order instead of purchasing drugs in the downtown east side. So, anyways, um, so yeah. do do you think is it fair to say though, if people cannot abide by those those red zones, um, are are these orders um, intended to? to be punitive and like are they are they intended to see people fail and have them tied up again in the criminal justice system increasingly 
Well, that's a good question, and I think there's a lot of different logics. When you start asking why somebody would, why a judge or a prosecutor would ask for a red zone, there's different prosecutorial approaches to these things, and it varies a lot by jurisdiction. So Vancouver is notoriously um, not particularly punitive. They're not known to be very uh, tough on crime. They're not known to impose harsh sentences generally. The judiciary won't do that, and that's reflected in bail as well. You're not going to see... Um, humongous red zones that are clearly exclusionary. In Victoria, you do. In Surrey, I hear you do. In North Vancouver, I hear you do. Um, so, you know, one of the people I interviewed, one of the, so first of all, I, I should say, one of the very, very common life experiences, and my interviews didn't fo- focus on two things. They were life story interviews. So, what's your current experience of being red zoned, but also what experiences have you had in the past? And I was amazed, didn't really expect to hear quite to the extent to which people had been dealing with red zones since they were young. So most of my people that I, most of the people that I interviewed had begun their so quote unquote criminal careers, had been begun interacting with the justice system since they were minors, um, since before they could be tried in adult criminal court system. And many of them, especially people that grew up um, in a First Nations context on reserve, many of them uh, ended up in the Dentoni side after being given a red zone, banning them from their hometown. Uh, mm. Very common experience. Uh, people, Many of the people that I interviewed who moved to the Dentoni side did so as a proximate cause of an area restriction being imposed in places like Kelowna, Prince George. Um, and there's a reputation, and this came out a lot in my interviews, that the RCMP is much harsher than the Vancouver Police Department and that red zoning is an explicit tactic of the RCMP in a way that the Vancouver Police Department may not think. And part of the reason for that is, really, legally, the case law on red zones is clear that you're not supposed to red zone someone in a way that forces them to leave a community. Mm. You're free to red zone within an urban scale. So if you're given a red zone that requires you to move, that red zone would amount to banishment, which is not okay legally. That's never been part of the Canadian Criminal Code um, or an acceptable judicial exercise of judicial authority. But if you're given a red zone that's small enough that it would still permit you to live within this community, um, within the city, not the community, but the city metropolitan area that is known as Vancouver, well, in that case, the red zone would be fine. So that's sort of the general constraint. But it seems like lower court judges in a lot of these smaller communities where there's less legal oversight, for instance, um, and there's less of a willingness to, to send a d- decisions up to a court. There's not organizations, for instance, like the Civil Liberties Association or Pivot Legal that are really going to be keeping an eye on these things. Um, in those contexts, you begin to see red zones that, get, that, that, that creep inside in, in size. And when you see these larger restrictions, you do wonder what, what possible good is this condition doing beyond sort of pushing an undesirable person out of a community? And, I, and I, th- I think there's really a strong need for a lot more oversight in these smaller communities around these different kinds of complicated legal forms because they're not statistically visible. You, there's no way to look across BC at the different policing and judicial jurisdictions and look at who's red zoning in what way. There's no statistic that's that fine-grained. It's just not reported in that way. When you look in the case of Vancouver, though, you see a mixture of punitive and therapeutic logics. It's not exclusively about you know coming down hard on illicit drug users. I would say that it reflects what you might call a paternalistic logic, uh, one that doesn't really embrace the science that behind things like harm reduction. So by and large, judges that are imposing restrictions, and not all judges, I should add, will agree to red zones. There are a few judges in Vancouver who will systematically say, no, I don't think that's helpful. I think it's counterproductive. Um, 
but there are many judges who see things differently and often this in the for, for some of these judges in their worldview uh there's a belief that a lot of criminal activities associated with the downtown east side community if that you can get a person to get outside of the downtown east side specifically that you're likely going to lead to positive lifestyle changes and this worldview may come from personal life experience um i think that it's social science it doesn't have a firm you know, there's not a firm base of evidence to say one way or the other. In fact, it's actually it's an ongoing debate whether or not these con- areas of concentrated poverty, these, these communities, whether or not they're they're criminogenic, so to mm-hmm. speak. Um, Is this not a sort of a, a rehashing of the argument of environmental determinism, though, that you're, the environment or the space that you find yourself in determines social outcomes? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think there is this, there's a yeah, there's an affinity between those two arguments. To say that an area of entrenched poverty where there's an open-air drug market, um, to say that causes addiction, of course, would be to confuse causation and correlation. We, we don't know. You know, We can't say. It seems fairly clear, especially given the fact that a lot of people who live in the downtown east side um, weren't born and raised in Vancouver but ended up on the mean streets uh, of the downtown east side after, you know, several interactions with the justice system and often um you know history of of trauma and abuse so of course to say that addiction is caused by these communities is mistaken but it is i think an open question in my mind at least to say to the extent to which when we're talking about people who are recovering from addiction if uh, the setting like the downtown east side is going to be the best situation for that maybe for some people and you know of course we when we're talking about um when we're talking about addressing the problem of addiction in our society which is a huge issue i mean on all levels not just for poor poor people who live in the downtown side many of whom are marginally housed but you know in all strata of society addiction is a big issue um to say you know what do people need to get better it's complicated it's a it's an issue that we don't have a lot of good answers to and i, I think the best models that i know about understand that you start by meeting people where they're at so that seems important to me as well so um that you know, that's my own personal view. We're getting a little bit outside the scope yeah. of the research, but just to answer to, to kind of finish the thought, um, when we're talking about some people who are trying actively to um, detoxify and to leave behind addictive lifestyles, leaving the downtown side might make sense, and they might want to be seeking recovery in an, elsewhere. So, in, in that setting, I can see how a judge might impose a red zone, reflecting those logics, and and feel sort of supported by. Their own life experience, and um, and and you know, I don't know the, the the body of research as well, but that makes sense to me. Is there a consideration though with that, and taking some of your points, um, and building off of that, um, with the fact that housing many people are in the downtown east side because of um, the lower cost of housing that cannot necessarily be found uh, in other places, other neighborhoods, even other cities across the region. So the question of housing is a good one, you know, and, and, and one of the things that's really interesting when you talk, and I had the opportunity to interview um, the federal crown, so the prosecuting attorneys that were asking for the conditions to begin with, um, and arguably the place where these conditions start would be legally would be these actors, uh, ask them about what stops them, or what factors they consider when they're first asking for an area restriction or a red zone, and what it, ultimately housing plays a huge role in dissuading the federal crown from imposing a larger area restriction. Mm-hmm. So, to clarify what I mean by it when I say that, if the prosecuting attorney is considering asking as a condition of bail that someone be banned from an area, they will start by asking 
for the largest restriction possible, so the whole of the downtown east side. If someone's living within the downtown east side, they won't ask for such a large restriction. They'll ask for maybe a one block to two block restriction around where they were arrested. Um, so the only thing that's preventing the justice criminal justice system in Vancouver from using red zones in a way that would be very that would displace a lot of people from the downtown east side is the concentration of affordable housing stock in the community and the fact that a lot of people live there. If that wasn't the case, the ability for people to resist the exclusionary effects of red zones would be a lot less, and courts would be able to impose a whole lot more of, of these kinds of conditions. And um, so I think that in some ways the foothold of affordable housing creates you know, inclus- inclusivity. It, creates a, it, it resists some of the displacing effects of the, mm. of the criminal court system. Now, considering the role that we can think of in relationship between housing um, and the decision to impose a red zone. Well, one of the common forms that you see the larger restrictions imposed, the ones that are for the entire city of Vancouver, for instance, they would only really be found and can only really be justified legally um, in the context of someone who is currently in some sort of residential drug treatment program in a place like Surrey, uh, Burnaby, New West, where many of these drug treatment centers are found. I guess um, just to kind of zoom out a bit, when we're looking at these questions of addiction, of um, of the role of the judiciary and the criminal justice system in dealing with these very deeply rooted problems in our society, addictions, mental illness, and so on, um, we, we're, we're getting to see more and more this tension between the rights of the individual, the notion of a trial by your peers or by a judge, uh, the notion of guilty until proven innocent, um, or excuse me, innocent until proven <laughs> guilty. A lot of these foundational notions of procedural due process and justice seem to be at odds with um, what many see as the best practices from a medical perspective. So, and a, and a lot of this is tied into a movement away from sentence custody and a movement towards, for instance, um, crime prevention tactics like red zones and the flip side of red zones, which are temporary detention facilities or remand centers. So I think what we're seeing more and more, and this is really borne out strongly in the numbers, when you look at um, Statistics Canada data, you look at my thesis, the, the, the analysis that I did, what you really do see is a fundamental shift in the way justice works away from a rights-based model, more towards crime prevention and more towards more proactive forms of both of treatment and proactive forms of, of crime control, so to speak, um, which raise some serious questions and concerns. Do we want to live in a society where somebody who is suffering from an addiction or a mental illness in large part forfeits many of the rights that we who don't suffer from those illnesses have? Well, I don't think so. And yet we're faced with some of these really intractable issues. And of course, the bigger concern is that as we focus on more and more on the individual, as our criminal justice system and our you know, works more closely with the psychiatric field, with medical field, and so on, um, and zooms in on the individual, are we losing track of this bigger question about social policy and about the way that we provide housing, for instance, um, and the deeper, broader inequality that's structured in Canadian society so much. And I think that's really important, that even as we maybe have to consider certain forms of crime prevention strategies and the role that we want to, you know, as we have this conversation and we need to have this conversation, I think, we also need to have voices and have perspectives that are constantly zooming out to this larger scale. And you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM. I have two guests in the studio. I'm going to let you uh, introduce yourselves. 
Hi, this is Sally. I'm an intern in CITR.、Um, I really、um, enjoy the city show. The DJs is very awesome. <laughs> you guys might be really interesting about this. Hello, I'm also an intern at UBC for CITR Radio 101.9. The city. Oh shoot! Great, <laughs> great. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you both for being in the station, and I、oh, we have interns at CITR Radio. And any final thoughts about what you want to do in radio or in media? Keep listening to the city. <laughs> okay. Yes, of course. Great. Well, you're tuned into 101.9 FM CITR. This is the city, and we're also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and as a podcast at thecityfm.org. We're now listening to Will Damon, and we're talking about、uh, a recently completed research project examining the significance of administration of justice offenses, particularly area restrictions, and the implications they have on marginalized groups in Vancouver. And I want to thank my guests for joining me here in studio. And we're going to be back、uh, with the second part of that interview. Stay with us. This is the city. Sounds up. What's in my mind? Nothing. 
And that's a track from Language Arts. We're going back to an interview with Will Damon, a recent graduate from the Human Geography uh, graduate program at the at Simon Fraser University. This is the city, and we're talking about administration of justice offenses, particularly area restrictions and implications for marginalized groups in Vancouver. In in your conversations with um, actors in the criminal justice system, is there recognition that uh, the role that poverty and, and social inequality plays in more unequal societies, as um, some social scientists have done excellent work on, greater societies with greater social inequality um, have um, much more acute problems around um, some of these issues? Yeah, addictions. Yeah, so... It's a it's a mixed bag. Uh, you you go into the courts and you interview legal actors there. You talk to judges, as I've done. You talk to prosecutors, police officers, um, so on, and you see very different ideas about uh, what the what what leads to addiction, what we should do, how we should address the relationship between inequality and addiction, and mental health issues, and you know, and, and and crime. So this is actually an interesting anecdote, and I think it really speaks to this question. Our original questionnaire that we were using when we did, did interviews in the criminal court system in Vancouver, um, we were asking specifically about the effects of different kinds of conditions of release, including red zones, on what we were calling marginalized people. And um, the people we interviewed really bridled at this. They, they didn't like the question, and at first I thought that there's some sense it was a loaded term, but really, as I come to better understand their perspective, the reality is that, by and large, anybody that's moving through the criminal court system is is pretty deeply marginalized to begin with. And it really is astounding. Um, most people in the justice system today are poor people. People like you and I, you know, white, middle-class people, we just don't have the same kind of experience with the criminal court system. Um, a lot of the folks that are in the justice system now have been, and, and this is borne out in my interviews, but it's just, it's a widely established fact, have started their criminal, their interactions when they were, you know, 13. They started doing drugs when they were 12. Um, so the reality is, of course, that inequality and the criminal justice system have long been deeply intermeshed. And I think that most people working in the court system understand that by and large, we're not talking about very wealthy people being subject to any kind of criminal proceeding. I think that speaks to some of the more the, some of the inequality we see because, really, with the whole neoliberal you know paradigm, we are seeing less and less regulation, less and less oversight. The police are on the streets of the downtown east side; they're not in corporate corporate boardrooms, and that's just a function of the way society works. Um, so when we talk about the relationship between inequality and addiction and the relationship between courts 
and addiction and inequality and see how these things are all are, are implicated we really are invariably drawn to the conclusion that the criminal justice system is fundamentally part of the experience of poverty in Canada. I mean, it's just an extension of it. It's not separate from it. And even though the justice system was created by feudal lords in England, however many decades ago, to settle disputes between landholders, it's become a tool for managing uh, the you know yawning gap between rich and poor in our society, and that's clear to anyone working in there on some level. But it's certainly the case that a lot of people working within the justice system are dealing with deep, intractable social problems or very difficult to change social issues, and they're working with a set of tools that are not well suited to the job. What are the implications of your research uh, for um, Vancouver, but also thinking about cities um, in a more general and maybe more theoretical sense? Well, I think, you know, in my mind, there is a very compelling argument that we can make for remembering that the, the presumption of innocence that is foundational to bail, what's called the latter principle, which basically mitigates against imposing a whole lot of optional conditions of release on a bail order. And I think my, my research talking to people that are affected by red zones suggests that they're not having the effect that judges think they're having and that there is a strong argument to generally err against imposing a red zone. Uh, and I think judges, who, who any judge that would sit down with me and, and go over my interview transcripts and talk a little bit about the qualitative component of my research project would see that really the red zone isn't having the effect that they may think it does from where they're sitting you know, as a judge in a courtroom. So I think that's that's one of the big pieces, right? Another piece that I think is both an area for future research but also could potentially be a source for uh, important policy consideration is that my interviews bear out to a strong degree the fact that many, many people who live in the downtown east side who are currently subject to this never-ending cycle, the revolving door, as some people call it, of the justice system, um, have been in the past red zone, um, formally legally banished from smaller communities in northern BC or in the Okanagan. And I think there might be, and there, well, I think there definitely is a need for greater st- transparency in the use of things like red zones. If if courts are going to be imposing conditions that have the potential to push people out of a community, that needs to be reported in a way that courts are held accountable to their decision-making. Because, and I get it, you know, if you're living in a small reserve community and there's pro- where addiction is rampant, um, it's very difficult for these under-resourced, com- under-resourced communities to address these problems. And it's much easier to push the problem along. The issue, of course, or the problem individual along, of course, it's, you know, people first, but I can I can kind of understand, I can put myself in their shoes and see why you might want to seek a red zone because nothing else has worked, the family isn't there maybe. But the reality is pushing the problem along is just delaying the inevitable and, and offloading, you know, um, and, you know it's, it's, it's a short-term perspective. We need to have a big, longer term. We need to think in a longer time frame. And part of that, I think, is social scientific research and data can play a a role in that by bringing and shedding light on the use of these optional conditions so we can see what communities are imposing unrealistic bail orders. Because the reality is, of course, and I don't think this is true in most cases, but it certainly could be, if a judge wanted to see somebody locked up, a really good way of doing that, even if they're not committing criminal offenses, but if they're just problematic, let's say there's an issue with homelessness in your community and you're just tired of dealing with a lot of the Native people that aren't housed, and, and, and you know, this is something that I've seen and talked to and heard, and this isn't just me speculating idly. If you're, if you're kind of sick and tired of them, well, you impose a bail order that's not, that they're not able to abide by, and that's a really quick way to put someone into you know, uh, a jail cell. So there really is a need for more oversight and, and, and more transparency. So I'd like to see statistical reportage that 
you know, are mandated on the part of municipalities to report the, these kind of justice interact, interactions with the justice system. I'd like to see that. I think that would be important. Part of this, I think, is, is something that um, is intriguing to me, but in terms of seeing the criminal justice system, you're in the title, you talk about Vancouver's criminal justice system, and I'm wondering if you can speak more to the uneven and variegated landscape of criminal justice, um, because it's not just BC, like in terms of criminal justice, it's not applied um, in the same ways or even across Canada. So, um, and you touched on this a bit more, but maybe if you can um, spend a bit more time just teasing that out. Sure. Well, Vancouver's experience is unique. I mean, we are a progressive city in a lot of ways. There's a more of an embrace of harm reduction practices in Vancouver than any other city in North America. I mean, you just have to look at insight. So it does change your experience, and I think for the better. Um, we tend to see a more tolerant approach towards issues of addictions and mental health. There's a willingness to um, not impose exclusionary bail conditions on people. Uh, many people that I interviewed talked about how, no, we're not going to put an order to abstain from drugs and alcohol on somebody that is a has been an alcoholic for the past 20 years. That just doesn't make sense. So there's a sense that there's more understanding, a deeper and more nuanced sense of a reasons the root causes of addictions and mental health in the city and that really speaks in the way that the justice system operates here um now comparing vancouver's experience to the rest of canada we're just now getting our findings and we don't have the quantitative piece done yet in toronto and montreal so this is this larger project that my research was a pilot for um we haven't yet gotten the quantitative piece, so I'm a bit hesitant to try to extrapolate too much, but I can say that it seems to be the case that these area restrictions are at work and regularly, routinely used in Toronto and in Montreal, and they're having much the same effects on the people that they're imposed on. Canadian criminal justice, to take it to the next level, to compare Canada to other countries even, um, we are a policy exporter in terms of justice system uh, policy justice reform is catching on in the United States and the language that's being used right now in a lot of places like New York City where they're really considering a large number of options reflects the Canadian approach to policing. Um, it's called risk-based policing and it's based on research by Jim Bonta and some other criminologists uh, out of U of T and this thing that they created called the Risk Needs Responsivity Model which basically seeks to um, you know, proportion out uh, justice interaction um, so that it fits the offense um, and matches the risk, you know, the, the perceived or measured risk of the offender while also addressing underlying criminogenic need. So anyways, that's kind of a convoluted academies, I suppose. But what the, the takeaway point is that a lot of people are looking to Canada and to these kinds of models of criminal justice that focus on crime prevention um, and that include red zones, and that they're modeling their own justice reform efforts after, uh, you know, after the Canadian experience. So what's interesting is that, of course, a lot of the success stories of this crime prevention strategy originate in cities with a strong commit, stronger commitment comparatively than, than you'll find in many major North American cities and major cities, metropolitan areas of the globe, a stronger commitment to social housing, for instance, to harm reduction principles, and a lot of that gets taken away from... Um, when, the, when these policies begin to travel, you, you maybe will lose sight of some of the um, foundations upon which the success stories sit. So when we talk about crime prevention, like a red zone, well, like I was talking about, if you combining a red zone with uh, 
for instance, access to affordable, high-quality addictions counseling and treatment at a residential treatment facility, perhaps that's going to have a higher success rate than you would see um, red zone in the absence of that, where a red zone in the absence of a lot of that supportive infrastructure is much more punitive and much more exclusionary and much less effective as a crime prevention tool. But you might see cities kind of looking to Canadian experiences as being held as a progressive model and forgetting that it really the successes of progressive criminal justice policy are in large part the, the successes of progressive uh, social service provision and success and progressive housing policy that they're